With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 282. It's titled, Is GDP the Best Measure of Happiness and Well-Being? Rena, a listener to the show, emailed me and sent a column by David Leonhardt of the New York Times. The column was titled, Why You Shouldn't Believe Those GDP Numbers. He wrote, Americans are dissatisfied and have been for years largely because the economy, as most people experience it, has not been booming. GDP, or gross domestic product, the economy's total output, keeps on rising. But it no longer tracks the well-being of most Americans. Instead, an outsized share of economic growth flows to the wealthy, and yet GDP is treated as a totemic measure of the country's prosperity. Totemic means representative or symbolic of a particular quality or concept. What is it that GDP is measuring? He defined it. The total output of an economy. What is produced? The dollar value of the goods and services produced over a given period. Leonhardt is saying that output number, GDP, is no longer tracking the well-being of most Americans. But is that what GDP was put in place to do? Track the well-being, or maybe more specifically, the economic well-being of a country's citizens? Rena asks, if GDP does not measure a nation's economic well-being, then what is the proper way to measure it? We're going to explore her question in today's episode. Leonhardt continues in his column, Consider the true picture. Middle-class income growth has been sluggish for decades. The typical household is still poorer than it was before the financial crisis began in 2007. Most alarming, average life expectancy has recently been declining. No wonder polls show that a majority of Americans has been dissatisfied with the country's direction for the past 15 years in a row, a period that encompasses the entirety of the current GDP expansion the longest on record. So it's time to stop wondering why Americans are unhappy and instead create a version of GDP that reflects reality, which may finally be on the verge of happening. Let's look at the indicators that he mentions. First, middle-class income growth has been sluggish for decades. He included a chart in his column that showed from 1947 to 1980, that GDP per person generally tracked the incomes of the bottom 90%. This would be after-tax income, including government benefits, adjusted for inflation, because the GDP number 
is the real GDP, and they tended to track very similar line. But since 1980, they've diverged. GDP per person per capita has grown faster than the incomes of the bottom 90%. Leonhardt also linked to another article that had a similar graph, but in this one, it was just since 1980, it showed how the top 1% of income after tax had grown faster than real per capita GDP. Again, all these income numbers are net of inflation, and that the middle 40% has lagged, and the bottom 50% has also lagged. So yes, income for most individuals is not growing as fast as the rate of increase in the dollar value of output. Does that make us unhappy? Should it make us unhappy? Leon Hart also points out that the typical household is still poorer than what it was before the financial crisis began in 2007. That's also correct. The median household net worth in 1989, according to data from the Federal Reserve, was $87,800. Average was $353,300. In 2007, at the peak of the housing bubble, the median net worth for a family was $140,100, and the average was $644,800. Then the housing bust, the Great Recession. And by 2010, the median family net worth had fallen 39% to $85,100. It was less than it was in 1989. The average only fell by 15% to 547000 and was well above that average back in 1989 of 353000 By 2016, the last data available, the median family income had rebounded to $97,300 still below the 140,000 from 2007 but above the 1989 number. Now, these are all inflation adjusted put in 2016 dollars. The average in 2016 had grown to 689,500. So, yes, the typical household, the median household or family is still poorer, has a lower net worth than they did in 2007. Finally, he says, most alarming, average life expectancy has recently been declining. That is also true. Average life expectancy at birth for U.S. males and females, all races, peaked in 2014 at 78.9 years. The most recent data was 2017 at 78.6 years. The U.S., a developed economy, a very wealthy economy, is seeing life expectancy drop. It's significant. Bob Anderson said he's the chief of the mortality statistics branch for the Center for Disease Control's National Center for Health Statistics. That's who produced the data. He continued, it doesn't seem like a lot, but in terms of human cost, you've got a lot of life that's not being lived. The Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development has a listing of countries by their life expectancy. Japan is the highest at 84.1 years, 
followed by Switzerland at 83.7 years. The U.S. ranks 29th. In the U.S., cancer and heart disease is down, but drug overdose and suicide is up. The spike in overdoses is coming from fentanyl and other synthetic opioids. Deaths from synthetic opioids rose 45% in 2017. Suicides are also up. The Center for Disease Control shows that from 1991 to 2001, U.S. male suicide rates was 20.9 per 100,000 men. From 2014 to 2016, it was 24.5 per 100,000. U.S. female suicide rates were significantly lower. I didn't realize there was such a gap. 1991 to 2001, there were 4.7 suicides per 100,000 females. For the 2014 to 2016 period, it was 6.9 per 100,000. Jerry Reed, he's the executive committee member of the National Alliance for Suicide Prevention, said most people who commit suicide make the final decision to end their lives about an hour before their death. If we can prevent access to the lethal means during that crisis hour, that crisis will de-escalate and we can save a life. Leon Hart, after sharing that, mentioned no wonder polls show the majority of Americans has been dissatisfied with the country's direction for the past 15 years. He linked to a Gallup poll that showed, indeed, here was the question, In general, are you satisfied or dissatisfied with the way things are going in the United States at this time? In 1981, only 21% of Americans were satisfied. It peaked in 1999 at around 70%, to 71%. And now we're back down to 36%. In 2009, the heart of the financial crisis, it was 9%. So we've gone from 9% up to 36%, but still much lower than in the late 90s. Is that the relevant question? What about Americans' satisfaction with their personal life? Here's a different Gallup poll. The question is, in general, are you satisfied or dissatisfied with the way things are going in your personal life at this time? 86% are satisfied. And it's pretty much held steady going back to 1980 when it was 77%. In 1999, it was roughly 88%. So it's kind of been in the high 80s. Leonhard mentions that the Department of Commerce is working on a different version of GDP that reflects reality, he says. And what is this version? Well, here's what the BEA says, the Bureau of Economic Analysis. Gross domestic product measures how a country's economy is doing based on the value of goods and services produced. GDP is part of BEA's national income and products accounts, which measures the value and makeup of the nation's output, the types of income generated, and how that income is used. Gross domestic income, which is conceptually equivalent to GDP, measures the incomes generated by the economy and provides information about how households are sharing in the economy's growth. The BEA and and the statistical agencies in other countries, you can't directly measure the amount of output produced. They use proxies. They use income of households, businesses, 
government. Or they can use consumption, what is being spent and invested. Continues, BEA is building a new set of statistics that takes this primary economic indicator, total U.S. personal income, and measures how it is distributed across households in different income groups. BEA plans to release prototype measures by the end of 2020. So they're going to show how the income that is used to estimate GDP is flowing to different parts of the economy. So I guess it would show that the wealthiest, top 1%, are having a larger contribution to GDP because they get more of the income, and so they're happier? It seems a little confusing. I guess we're going to have to wait to see the data. It's surprising, though, it's taken that long to decide, well, maybe we should calculate it that way. Because when Simon Kuznets, a government economist back in the 30s, calculated the first estimate of national income and GDP, he wrote, economic welfare cannot be adequately measured unless the personal distribution of income is known, how it's distributed by different income levels. And no income measurement, he continues, undertakes to estimate the reverse side of income. That is the intensity and unpleasantness of effort going into the earning of income. In other words, how satisfied are people with their jobs that they earn income for? He wrote, the welfare of a nation can therefore scarcely be inferred from a measurement of national income as defined above. From the very beginning, GDP and its equivalent national income are not the best indicators of the welfare of a nation. He also pointed out another serious flaw. His national income statistics didn't calculate or measure the services of housewives and other family members, what they did to contribute to the household, to care for those who are sick. He says the volume of services rendered by housewives and other members of the household toward the satisfaction of wants must be imposing indeed. But because they didn't get paid, and this national income statistic was looking at wages, salaries, and profits, and there wasn't a great way to measure what family members were doing, that they were not getting paid, they omitted it. So GDP is somewhat flawed if we're going to use that as a measure of well-being and get so overworked about it. The assumption is higher income equals greater well-being. The Lee Kum Shung Center for Health and Happiness at Harvard, there was a page I found that discussed how to measure well-being. They point out there are objective measures, which are usually characterized by higher educational attainment, safe neighborhoods, economic sufficiency, and stability. To calculate that, they say that they use indicators of education, the physical and built environment, the community, and the economy. The economy is just one, and these are objective measures that they point out tend to capture the societal well-being. But there are also subjective measures of well-being that characterize an individual's internal subjective assessment. There are psychological, social, and spiritual aspects of well-being. 
Those are clearly not captured in GDP numbers. And economists around the world recognize that. Before we consider better ways to measure well-being, let's pause to learn more about this week's sponsors. Sometimes it's just nice to sit back, relax, maybe even take a nap. That's not what you want your money to be doing. You want it to be working hard for you, earning interest, generating returns. That's where the Betterment Automated Investing and Savings app can help. Betterment's technology gives you advanced tools that are built to help you maximize returns. They have diversified portfolios of low-cost ETFs that have been constructed by experts. High-yield cash accounts, where your money can earn 11 times the national average. And automated investing technology, like automated rebalancing. These tools can help you reach your savings and investing goals. Betterment is a fiduciary. That means it's their job to act in your best interest. They will never recommend an investment or give you guidance unless they believe it will help you reach your financial goals. So visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about the high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed, cash reserves offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. I know in our business, having the right candidates for the job is critical to keep our business running smoothly. Now, LinkedIn isn't just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. So post your job for free at linkedin.com david. That's linkedin.com slash David to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Each year, there is a World Happiness Report issued. It ranks 156 countries by how happy their citizens perceive themselves to be. The first report was released in April 2012 in support of a UN high-level meeting on well-being and happiness defining a new economic paradigm. So it looks at available data to take a broader view of well-being, not just GDP. What they do is they use what's known as a Cantrill ladder, C-A-N-T-R-I-L, and ask survey respondents to place the status of their lives on a ladder scale ranging from 0 to 10 where zero means the worst possible life and 10, the best possible life. They also asked about positive effects. Did you smile or laugh a lot yesterday? And they asked about negative effects. Were the times you were worried or angry? And then they calculate a number from zero to 10 to see which country is happiest, just based on that happiness scale. 0 to 10. Finland is the highest at 7.769, followed by Denmark, 
Norway, Iceland, Netherlands, Switzerland, Sweden, New Zealand, Canada. The UK is 15th. The United States is 19th. And the least happiest countries, South Sudan, Central African Republic, Afghanistan, Tanzania, Rwanda, Yemen, Malawi, Syria, Botswana, Haiti. Their levels, South Sudan, is 2.85. The average is about 5.3 of the 156 countries. The study also seeks to explain why one country is less happy versus another. And they look at six variables. They do a regression analysis, which has an independent variable. Examples, log GDP per capita, the goods and services produced per person, social support, healthy life expectancy at birth, freedom to make life's choices, generosity, perceptions of corruption, and the positive and negative effect. Did you laugh yesterday? Did you enjoy life? Or were you worried? Those factors explain about 76% of the happiness levels from one country to the next. What's surprising, though, is the biggest factor was not GDP. The biggest factor was, did you smile or laugh a lot yesterday? Experience enjoyment. Did you just enjoy your life? Second was social support. The question was, if you were in trouble, do you have relatives or friends you can count on to help you whenever you need them or not? Having a social network, family, friends to support you is hugely important when it comes to happiness. Then less important was the freedom to make life choices. Are you satisfied or dissatisfied with your freedom to choose what you do with your life? Generosity. Have you donated money to a charity in the past month? That was the question. And the top countries with regards to money were Thailand. 72.8% of respondents said they had. Also in the 70s were the UK, Malta, Australia, the Netherlands, Ireland. U.S. was 62%. And then they asked about time. Did you give time to a cause in the last month? Sri Lanka was the highest at 48.3%, Liberia at 48%, U.S. at 42.4%, followed by New Zealand, Sierra Leone, Tasikistan, and the Philippines. In this regression analysis, surprisingly, GDP per capita and life expectancies, in terms of explaining the happiness between two different countries, were much less important than the positive effect of did you smile or laugh a lot yesterday, and the social support, and even less than the freedom to make choices. But when you look at the happiest countries, those scoring above seven, GDP per capita did contribute on average about one and a half points of that seven to seven and a half scale. Life expectancy was one. So it's not as if having more income doesn't contribute to happiness. It does. But there are other things that are much more important 
to happiness. Economists and politicians, the founding fathers in the U.S., have worried about this, recognizing that income and wealth, that just isn't enough to be happy. John Maynard Keynes, in his book, The General Theory of Employment, Interest, and Money, asked the question, what is wealth for? Robert Skidelsky and Edward Skidelsky, in their book, How Much is Enough? Money and the Good Life, mentioned Keynes' question and then wrote, how much money do we need to lead a good life? This might seem an impossible question, but it is not a trivial one. Making money cannot be an end in itself, at least for anyone not suffering from acute mental disorder. To say that my purpose in life is to make more and more money is like saying that my aim in eating is to get fatter and fatter. And what is true of individuals is also true of societies. Making money cannot be the permanent business of humanity for the simple reason that there is nothing to do with the money except spend it. And we cannot just go on spending. There will come a point when we will be satisfied or disgusted or both. Over the break, I read a book by... Koso Yamamura is an economics professor. It's called Too Much Stuff. And he pointed out that even the greatest kings of 200 years ago and the wealthiest people of the 19th century would envy us today. Industrialization has allowed GDP since the late 18th century, near when the U.S. was founded, to grow at about 3% per year. But prior to industrialization, GDP, or at least estimates of it, because we didn't really GDP was never really calculated to the 1930s. It only grew about 2% per decade, not 3% per year. So real incomes have grown. We're vastly more wealthy than we were hundreds of years ago. And he points out that many of the things that we think are necessities today are actually 50, 70 years ago were luxuries. Yamamura writes, by the 1980s, more and more people were acquiring an unprecedented quantity and variety of luxuries. These include a vastly increased choice of gourmet foods, closets full of clothes, countless new, mostly electric or electronic toys for adults, and other frivolous things brought increasingly on a whim and for vanity or amusement. So we have all these, in some regards, Necessary luxuries. And one of his concerns in his book, and it wasn't my favorite book, I thought it, it lacked some depth, was that the, rate, the, the economy is sick because there's too much luxuries. And the luxuries are not growing fast enough to support a consumer-oriented economy. But the founding fathers, they debated this. They were worried about too many luxuries, too many imports from Britain, that it would destroy the nation. John Adams wrote, a free people are most addicted to luxury of any. That equality which they enjoy and which they glory inspires them with sentiments which hurry into luxury. He said the objective was to find a form of government best calculated to prevent the bad effects and corruption of luxury. Alexander Hamilton in the Constitutional Convention says, we must take man as we find him. And if we expect him to save the public, we must interest his passions in doing so. And there was a debate. Simplicity, balance, growth, agrarian economy, 
or more business than commerce. Hamilton was on the side of more commerce. In the Federalist Paper, number 12, he writes, by multiplying the means of gratification, by promoting the introduction and circulation of precious metals, those darling objects of avarice and enterprise, it serves to vivify all channels of industry and make them flow with greater activity and copiousness. David Shee, in his book, The Simple Life, points out this debate between some of the founding fathers and others, that would it be possible to maintain controlled expansion with some farmers, some commerce, some household manufacturers, but agriculture, he writes, would remain the predominant form of economic endeavor. And then this would provide a widening base of employment to absorb new generations of Americans. And they would allow the young republic, kind of a middle stage, he points out, to where there would be some commerce, some manufacturing, some agriculture, but it would be balanced by statesmen of superior wisdom and virtue to prevent the excesses of urban industrialization that they saw in British society. And that technology would have a role. Horace Bushnell, Hartford Congregationalist minister, wrote, through mechanization, the laboring classes will be able to live in comparative leisure and eloquence and find ample time for self-improvement. In 1831, Timothy Walker in the North American Review wrote, If machines could be so improved and multiplied, there would be nothing to hinder all mankind from becoming philosophers, poets, and votaries of art. But the U.S. did not maintain household manufacturing. Instead, there were model factory centers built in Massachusetts, big textile mills in Lowell and Waltham. And I didn't realize this. They brought young women from the farms and brought them into the cities where they lived in boarding houses, dormitories, where church attendance was mandatory. They offered a lyceum, free lectures, libraries, improvement circles. But they housed them in the city and they would recruit these young women just like they've done in China in the past few decades. And they've done in other countries over the years. They did it in the U.S. They brought in female workers to produce in the factories. And it started off all well, the opportunity for leisure outside of work. But when cloth prices dropped in the 1830s, management cut wages and hours increased. One new manager in the 1830s says, I regard my work people just as I regard my machinery. So as long as they can do my work for what I choose to pay them, I keep them getting out of them all I can. Our personal happiness, a nation's happiness, is not primarily dependent on rising gross domestic product, rising incomes. It's so much more than that. It's having friends and family, social connections. It's laughing and enjoying life day to day. It's giving of our time and means to charitable causes, including those that focus on drug abuse and mental health. It's having the freedom to choose what we do each day including having adequate time for leisure, to pursue hobbies, to create. GDP, the monetary value of the goods or services produced this year or next, will never be adequate in measuring a nation's well-being, even if the BEA develops a new income distribution-focused GDP measure. That's episode 282. 
Hopefully, you've had a chance to read my new book, Money for the Rest of Us, 10 Questions to Master Successful Investing, or listen to the audio version. Here's a recent review from a longtime podcast listener. He wrote, Having listened to over 200 podcasts of David, I was not sure what to expect from the book. After listening to the six hours of the audiobook, I was really pleased by both the structure and content of the book. David's approach of first defining what is investing versus speculating versus gambling provides an excellent foundation for all the topics that follow. Most importantly, the book was not a repetition of his podcast, and I believe will be beneficial to both podcast listeners and non-podcast individuals. I also believe the book will benefit both beginning investors and those investors with a lot of experience. So please check out the book, and if you've read it, I would love if you could leave a review on Amazon or Goodreads. You can get show notes for this episode, 282, at moneyfortherestofus.com. While you're there, please sign up for my free weekly email, The Insider's Guide, and I'll share those links to you each week as long, along with an essay. I do some of the best writing I do on money, investing, and the economy right to your inbox. You can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.